All right. Well, good morning. Welcome once again, CF. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up uh, to Romans chapter 5. Grab a Bible, grab an app, whatever it is. Uh, you're going to Romans chapter 5 this morning. Um, and while you're turning there, I'd like to thank everybody who came out to help and be part of our uh, surprise um, celebration for our uh, very wonderful Shannon Bailey, who worked very hard these last four years and graduated from Lane Tech High School. And so yesterday we were able to go out um, and parade and make a big uh, nuisance of ourselves, making noise uh, to celebrate and let her whole block know just how proud we are of her and how much we love and care for her and for the whole Bailey family. So thank you for everybody who came out uh, to celebrate Shannon. So um, as I said, we're going to be in Romans 5. So last week we talked about um, the need to recalibrate, that in the midst of uh, all of the different things, all of the voices, all of the different things that we have going on in the world today, it can get easy to lose sight of what it is we're supposed to be focused on. We need to reset the watch we talked about. In the midst of everything going on, it's easy to find ourselves swept up in the many outside things and, need to our, our, and our need to recenter on Christ. So last week we talked about strength and unity. We looked at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, um, the church in Ephesus, and his prayer that they would be strengthened and that they would be brought together uh, through Christ and that they would be unified in Christ. And so this morning we are going to look um, at Paul's letter to the Romans and his encouragement and reminder. be fulfilled in God. Strength, unity, community, hope, these things, when built on us, when built on how impressive or good or nice we are, these things will fail. But rooted in Christ, they are strong, they have security. And so, uh, you know, in public speaking classes and even in sermon preaching classes, they tell you um, the kind of basic outline you're supposed to go with is tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you just told them. So this morning, um, as we're already having audio difficulties this morning, if everything else falls apart this morning, what I want you to hear, what I want you to know more than anything else is that if your hope is in anything other than God, it will fail you. But if your hope is in Christ, you will never be disappointed. That's our main focus for this morning, is that if your hope is in anything other than God, it will fail you. But if your hope is in Christ, you will never be disappointed. So that's what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump in uh, to Romans chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this chance to open your word, to sing worship to you, to pray, to just be in your presence, to spend time together, even if we are separated by houses and separated by zip codes, we are gathered together. This idea that, we, that the church is somehow not open, that the church is closed during this whole quarantine is just doesn't make any sense because these things cannot stop you and cannot stop your spirit from gathering us, uniting us, and letting us worship you. God, we pray that this morning is a time that glorifies you, that makes much of you. Because you are worthy and holy and good and just. Lord, as we gather together, God, we know how powerful you are. We know that you are in control of all things all the time. And so, Lord, we ask that you would put an end to the coronavirus, that the spreading would stop, not just trickle, but just be done and stop, that healing would happen, that there, this would be just a faint, distant memory, that you would do and move in ways that only you can. Lord, as our country continues to see unrest, as we continue to face 
years and years and years of sin that is deeply embedded into our country, into systems. Lord, I pray that honest conversations can happen, that we can move forward, that there can be growth and change. That, Lord, this country would be rebuilt on the gospel, on the good news that you, you have sent your son to die for us, that there is reconciliation to be had. Once we have reconciliation with you, we can have reconciliation with one another. Lord, I pray that there might be hope and healing and reconciliation as we move forward. God, as we study your word today, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to understand and hearts to believe and to act on what you have called us to. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. That's tart. Um, All right, Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's stop there. Paul starts in chapter 5, and he says, therefore. When you read the Bible and you see a therefore, you've got to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Most of the book of Romans, most of this letter that Paul is writing is explaining to the Christians in Rome this concept of justification by faith. Right at the top, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. It is a major theme of Romans. Thousands upon thousands of lines have been written by scholars and theologians and pastors on this topic. Books upon books weigh down pastor shelves all over the world that cover justification by faith. Some would say it is the major point of the entire book of Romans and arguably one of the most important points, one of the most important theological concepts in Christianity, that it is essential to our Christian faith. It is a major theme. And so he has spent the first half, the first quarter of this book, the first four chapters, explaining, walking through what it means to be justified by faith and what, why that had to happen. And so finally here at the beginning of chapter 5, he feels that he has thoroughly enough explained and convinced them of the value and importance of justification by faith, and now he can proceed. Problem is, we didn't study the first four chapters of Romans. So while Paul can proceed, we can't. We need to take a pause and talk about what this phrase has to do with us. What does it mean, justified by faith? What is justified? Typically, we use this word to mean, I'm in the right. Billy said something so horrible to me, so heinous to me, that I punched him in the mouth, and I was justified to punch him. I'm in the right. I have the moral high ground. And this word, there are times where the Bible uses justified in that to talk about having the moral high ground. But more frequently, especially when it comes to Paul, he is using this word in its natural setting, which is the legal setting. It's a legal term. In the same way that things like sentenced and condemned are legal terms, justified is a legal term. 
It means to stand before a judge and be declared innocent, blameless, righteous. If the judge justifies you, you are innocent. If he condemns you, you are guilty. We have a system of courts that seeks justice. But we also know it doesn't always do that because on both sides of every court case, you have a bunch of people who live in a fallen world and they themselves are sinners by nature. The person on the bench deciding the court case also lives in a fallen world and is a sinner by nature. We live in a broken, fallen world, and so our justice system oftentimes reflects that. True justice can't always happen. But in this case, when we are talking about the very place that justice finds its beginning, finds its very essence in God himself, things are different. He is the perfect, just judge. And so when we talk about God as judge, we know justice will always prevail. Pastor Colin Smith says that these words, justified, condemned, sentenced, things of that nature, are about declaring or recognizing something that is already true. When justice prevails, an innocent person will be acquitted, justified, and a guilty person will be sentenced, condemned. Paul says we are justified by faith. We are declared innocent by the judge by our faith. But you see, the judge doesn't address your living, your life situation, unless there's a reason, an accusation, right? Judges don't just drive around deciding who's innocent and who's guilty. They do it in a courtroom. They do it when an accusation has been brought forward. So that means there's been an accusation brought before us. And Paul talks about that in Romans 23 when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I really like this in the Greek. I'm not usually that kind of uh, preacher, but in the Greek, the word all, it always gets me. The word all in the Greek actually means all, everyone. No one is free from this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all on an equal playing field when it comes to sin. We have all committed it. We have all rebelled against God. That's who we are. Paul will continue then in Romans 6.23, and he'll say, For the wages of sin is death. So to catch you up, we have all sinned, we are all guilty, and the sentence that that sin demands is death. But in the beginning of chapter 5, Paul just told us that we have been justified. We have been acquitted. We are innocent. Through what? Through our faith. How are we justified? We are justified by faith. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Faith that he lived? We know he lived. Faith that he died? We know he died. Faith that he walked a lot? Faith that he had a really sweet beard, I'm sure? Faith in what about Jesus? It is faith that Jesus was God in the flesh. That he was perfect and sinless, and so his death became the ultimate and perfect sacrifice to God. He became a sacrifice on our behalf. He took our place. He served our guilty sentence so that now we don't have to. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Martin Luther calls that the great exchange, where at the cross, Jesus takes on our sin and the guilt and punishment that that deserves and gives us his righteousness. It is faith in Jesus and him alone that we gain this innocent, justified standing before God. That standing is not because of us. It's not because we're impressive. It's not because we won at life. It is not because we are good enough, smart enough, fast enough. It's because of Jesus. He gives us his right standing, his innocence, his blamelessness. Our standing with God, our relationship with God is found and grounded in the person and work of Jesus. Faith in him and him alone is what justifies us. Over the course of my life, I've had the opportunity to present the gospel, you know, in one-on-one settings, small group settings, multiple times. And I've walked people through how, by nature, we are enemies against God. We are rebels and enemies. We have sin. We have sin nature in us. And looked at those verses, 323 and 623, and talked about how for all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And that's the, the problem we have. And God stepped into humanity, sent Jesus who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was our substitute. And if you would put your faith in him, if you would put your faith in Christ and him and him alone, you would be saved from the wrath of God. You would be saved to be a blessing to others. You would be saved uh, and be able to be in the family of God and be a Christian. I've had the chance to walk people through that. And the pushback I've gotten from people is usually something akin to, that's it. It seems too simple. It seems too easy. There must be something more that I have to do. It seems too easy for that to be all. And for us, on our end, it is that simple and that easy. The work has been done for us. But do not let that blind you to the reality that your justification did not come simple and easy, but rather at the costly price of Jesus' life and death and burial. Jesus lived perfectly for us. He was fully and completely human, as human as any one of us, maybe even more so. Hebrews 4 also tells us that in every respect he was tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. So think about all the times you have been tempted to sin. Think about how hard it was to resist that temptation, how easy it would have been to sin. And think about those times where you resisted, where you walked away, where you felt you were in that moment where you could have given in to temptation to sin and you turned away and you ran toward God and you got out of there and how great that felt. But then also think about the times you were tempted to sin and you gave in. Those times where you did give in because it was easy and it made sense and in that moment that's all you wanted. Jesus never gave in. You think Satan wasn't constantly trying to get him to sin? Because if Jesus sins, game over. He had to be perfect to get he had to be perfect by the time he got to the cross for him to be the perfect sacrifice. So if he sins in those 30 something years, we're in trouble. You think Satan didn't realize it? You think Satan wasn't constantly trying? You think Satan didn't put a bounty on Jesus' head to the rest of the demons? I mean, Satan himself shows up, right? When Jesus is at his physical weakest, after spending 40 days in the wilderness fasting, 
Satan shows up to tempt him. And we know from reading Genesis 1, we know, and even from other places when we looked at the prophets in Isaiah and Ezekiel, we know that he was good-looking, that he was clever, that he was impressive, that he was cunning and manipulative. And at that moment when Jesus is at his weakest, Satan shows up trying to trap him, trying to trick him. Jesus never gave in. Jesus spent his life battling temptation for you and for me. And then that night, that night in the garden when he is going to be abandoned and betrayed and arrested. Before all of that, he's in the garden and he's on his knees sweating blood, begging his dad, if there is any other way, can we do this any other way? Can we save humanity any other way? Can I avoid the cross? And that's with Jesus knowing full well that Sunday was coming. Right? He knew full well that the cross wasn't going to be the last word. He knew he would be resurrected. He knew that the, the grave would, you know, the tomb would be empty. The stone would be rolled away. He would be exalted and restored. And still he didn't want to go to the cross because he knew the physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional pain and anguish that he would endure so that he who had no sin could become sin so that you and I would gain the righteousness of Christ. Yes, for you and I, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Put your faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and you are saved. And it is that simple, but it was not easy. It was not cheap for you to be justified. Don't ever forget that. We are made innocent through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that's not all, because... We have a big God. And when God does something, when God moves, he moves in God-sized fashion. And so it's not only that we have been justified by faith, it says we also have peace with God. We have been justified, and because we have been justified, we have peace with God. Peace is a byproduct of our justification. It comes through Jesus. It comes through faith in him alone. Peace is not the absence of war. It's not neutrality. But rather, it's seeking the other side's prosperity. It's not just, I just don't hate you. It's, I want to see you thrive. I want to see you at the best that you can be. It's not that we are neutral with God or just mere acquaintances. We are his children, sons and daughters, adopted fully and completely into the family of God, in which he seeks to bless us care for us, and provide for us. Because we are innocent through our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. We are no longer rebels and enemies, but now his children. But again, that's not all. Because we see in verse 2, not only have we been justified, not only do we have peace with God, but we also have the grace to stand in the presence of God. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace makes it possible to stand. Most sin, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we did the, the Q&A with Pastor Tim, that I think you could take pretty much any sin and you can backtrack it all the way down to pride, to I know better than God. Right? Every sin kind of has its roots in I know better than God in this situation. We are by nature proud people. It's easy for one person to say, well, look, I decided to put my faith in Jesus 
and now I'm in a good relationship with God because I did that. It is only by grace that you have been saved. It is only by grace that you even get the chance to put your faith in Christ. We did not deserve a way out of eternal hell and suffering. We did not deserve God coming to earth to die for us, and yet we got it. And we have this chance to put our faith and trust in that so that we might experience God's presence. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, so that no one may boast. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And while we were still dead in our trespasses, God made a way for us to be alive. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it all happened before we even had the chance to respond. So to think that somehow we did this, we are so impressive, is to miss the entire point of the gospel and what God has done for us. No, it is by grace that we have been saved. And Paul says it is through this grace that we have obtained access by our faith. This word obtained access refers to being introduced into the king's court. You couldn't just march in, right? If I went down to City Hall right now to try and get into the mayor's office, I would get stopped and beaten like six different times before I even made it to her floor. You need access to get into places like that. Paul says that through our justification, through our peace, by our faith, we are led into God's presence by Christ. He is, in a sense, our all-access pass. And not only that, but the way Paul writes this means that this is something that happened at a point in history. It happened at the moment of salvation that we have gained this access into the presence of God and it continues on into the future. It has future effects. The grace that we stand in, the peace that we have, the justified status, they do not stop. They will not ever stop. God will not take them away. Once your faith is in Christ, you have this forever. You are secure. This is who you are forever. You cannot lose it. It cannot be taken from you. You cannot sin so big that God decides he can't forgive it. That's a lie Satan tries to tell us. You see, Satan will come at you in any different way, right? Pre-sin, before you actually sin, he's going to tempt you and tell you, it's not, so, it's not a big deal. What's the difference? You've already done it once in the past. You might as well sin again. It's, who's it going to hurt? Nobody's going to know. It's just, between, it's just between us. You just go ahead and take care of that. And he, he convinces us that sin isn't such a big deal, that it isn't this horrible att attack on God's character because that's what it is. Satan minimizes it. But then as soon as we do sin, as soon as we do give in to that temptation, Satan will lean on, I can't believe you just did that. That's so horrible. God could never forgive that. You have screwed up one too many times. You have messed up and you are totally unforgivable. Satan is the father of lies, only looking to steal and kill and destroy. But the reality is, is that once you are in the family of God, you are in the family of God. You cannot outsin God's grace. You cannot outsin. There is nothing you can do that the cross didn't pay for. This is where our hope needs to lie, in the reality of who we are as sons and daughters of God, adopted completely and fully into the family of God. Co-heirs with Christ is what Paul will say. So the inheritance that is due to Christ is due to us because we are co-heirs with him. See, all of this comes back to being justified by our faith in Christ. It is no wonder why so many people over the course of history have talked about the importance of this phrase, being justified by faith. 
It's why it's so important for us to understand what Christ has done for us and the lasting eternal results of Christ's sacrifice and the Holy Spirit's work in us. Yes, we are saved from the wrath of God, but we're also saved to be a blessing. It affects us here and now. The gospel matters here and now. It transforms here and now. It produces fruit. It brings light and life and hope and strength and growth now. And so then it is no wonder when we think about the magnitude of this reality that we have been justified, that we are seen as innocent in the eyes of God. The holy, perfect, and just God sees us and calls us innocent and blameless. And not only that, but then he takes off the judge robe and he calls us sons and daughters. It's not just this legal relationship we have with him. In Christ, we are his children. And so when we take in the grandeur and the majesty and the, and the giant scope of what Christ did and what it means for us to be justified, it is no wonder that Paul would say that we can, in light of all of that, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That we are to rejoice, that we are to celebrate the hope of the glory of God. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is not, ah, oh, gee, shucks, I hope that works out. Hope is a confident expectation. We can live and rejoice in the confident expectation of the glory of God. We can rejoice because we know that God will keep every promise in this book. Because he kept the biggest one. He kept the promise in which he said he was going to send one who was going to go to war with Satan. That he was going to send one who was going to deal with Satan and deal with sin, who was going to restore all things back to himself, who was going to restore order to the chaos that sin has brought. And he kept that promise. Even though it looked throughout the history of the line of promise, it looked so many different times like something bad was going to happen and everything was going to fall apart. God kept his promise because he's in control of all things all the time. He kept his promise in sending Jesus to die for us on the cross. God has proven he is perfect and just judge who is trustworthy. Because of the justification that we have in Christ, because of the grace that we receive through Christ, we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in knowing something better is coming. And we get to see it now in these little glimpses, these little moments. We get to see it when we go out into creation and we see this world that God has made. We see it when justice truly does happen, when justice truly is carried out. We see the glory of God, these little moments. We see it when people respond to the Holy Spirit and are welcomed into the family of God. That's the glory of God shining through. We get these bits and pieces, these moments, these shadows of something better to come. It's these little reminders that God says, I'm still with you, I'm still for you, and I'm still going to send Jesus back to redeem and restore Hold on, hang on. It's the same message he was telling the Israelites from when he made that promise in Genesis 3. And over and over throughout their history, he said, hold on, I haven't forgotten about you. And still now today, he says to us, hold on, I haven't forgotten about you. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. I know the world is broken. I promise we are redeeming and restoring all things back to the Trinity. Just hold on. We rejoice in the reality that something perfect is on its way the full and complete rule and reign of God that we will one day experience. And because we know that is coming, because of what we have already experienced by being justified through faith in Jesus, that should change how we engage with the world around us. It should change how we view our own experiences. Paul says in verse 3, 
not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, Paul knows straight up that that doesn't make any kind of sense. And he understands that as he walks out why it is that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. He says, rejoice in your sufferings because sufferings produce endurance. Tribulation, pressure, opposition, affliction, and distress. The Christian life does not automatically mean that we get to skip the hard stuff. If anything, the reality is we are aligning ourselves with the one who is executed by the government. That's going to make life get a little bit harder for us. I know these last few months have not been easy. I know for me personally, it seems like I've gone through multiple waves where every text message, every phone call, every notification, every piece of news was just another kick in the stomach. Just this past weekend, I had family in town because we had a celebration of life service for my uncle who passed away. Over and over, 2020 has been a bully of a year. Seemingly at every turn, punching and hammering us with everything it's got. So it is no wonder that there are so many who just want to cancel 2020. They're longing for 2021, this fresh start. There is this constant thought, I'm sure some of you have had it because I've had it myself, of let's just put our heads down. Let's just put our heads down and just survive the rest of this year. Let's just get through it. Let's just get to tomorrow. Let's just get through the rest of 2020. But what if? What if instead of merely surviving, merely getting through, What if we instead viewed the previous six months that we've already gone through and the six that are before us through the lens of God is in control of all things all the time? What if we saw what we've already walked through and what's coming up ahead as not a wasted or stolen year, but rather a year for growth and newness and renewal? Paul says rejoice in your suffering because it produces endurance. It produces perseverance. James has the same idea in his letter where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It's okay to be in suffering, to be in hardship, to be at a low point because God uses that to produce in us endurance. Endurance comes through hard things. And the idea that Paul is writing about here is not a passive endurance. It's not a keep your head down and plow through and just survive it kind of endurance or perseverance. This word actually means it's a spirit that can overcome. One that does not passively endure, but which actively overcomes the trials and tribulations of life. When Beethoven was forced to deal with going deaf, which I'm told as a musician that makes things really hard. I don't know. When when Beethoven was forced to deal with going deaf, he said, I will take fate by the throat. He did not let it stop him from being a great musician. When I think about this active endurance, I think of Rocky. Right? The story of this nobody boxer from Philly 
who finds his way into a fight with a boxer who is faster, stronger, tougher than he is. His pressure, his opposition, his tribulation is going to stand before him in the other side of the ring and is going to punch him in the face. And so what does Rocky do to get ready? The best part of any movie ever. He does a training montage. Rocky gets ready. He actively pursues training to overcome his obstacle. He doesn't just sit around and wait to get punched in the face by Apollo Creed. He actively prepares himself so that when he gets punched in the face, he can get back up and continue forward and clear those obstacles. That is active endurance. That is what Paul is talking about. That is the perseverance he has in mind. That yes, you might get hit in the face. You might get dealt with a hard bully of a year. Press on. Fight anyway. Because endurance produces character. Proven character, tested character is what Paul says. It's like putting gold into the refiner's fire. It burns off the excess and the imperfections. And what you have left when you take it out is pure and authentic and proven and the strongest version. So we go through hardships and we choose to persevere. We choose to press on. And through that, we see that our faith is real, that it matters, that it has been tried and tested and come out the other side authentic and stronger. This is not endurance based on you and your strength, but rather your trust in God and the power of the Holy Spirit in and through you. Your ability to persevere, your ability to trust in God, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. Otherwise, we go back to the ego and pride thing, right? Look at how strong my faith is. Look at how I endured this situation all on my own. Look how mature I am. It's a Pharisee view of a relationship with God and of life in general. Now, when Paul talks about character, tested, proven character, produced through the Holy Spirit, induced endurance, it is the face, in the face of trials, it is a person who humbly understands the power and majesty of God. This character that is produced by Holy Spirit-induced endurance in the face of trials is a person who humbly understands the power and majesty of God. And someone with a character like that, that kind of character produces in us hope. Hope is a confident expectation. Seeing that your faith is indeed real and genuine, living and active, the result will be a renewed strengthening of your confident expectation, which again takes us back to verse 2. It is only by having hope in the glory of God that we can endure sufferings, knowing that God is in control of all things all the time and something better is coming. It gives us the ability to have hope. He's not wasting our trials. He's not wasting our time. He's using them to strengthen us. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We know God is in control of all things all the time. And we also know that one day Christ will come to right all of this world's wrong. He will come to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. These are certainties. This is where our hope should be. And so I ask this morning, brothers and sisters, where is your hope? Because Paul goes on to say in verse 5 that hope does not put us to shame, does not disappoint. When your certainty, when your hope is in Christ, you will never be disappointed. How could you be? How could you be disappointed by him? Because all things were created by him and through him and for him. It's all his and who he is. He is good and just and loving, protective, kind, compassionate, powerful, gentle, strong, righteous, all-knowing, unchanging, ever-true, this infinite, powerful God has stepped into earth to suffer and die for us, and in doing so, teach us and show us what true love is. How can we possibly be disappointed in him? Paul says God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit's desire is to glorify Christ. And so the love poured into us by the Spirit points us back to Christ, points us back to Christ at the cross, the sacrificial, unconditional love shown by Jesus as he does the will of the Father who sent him, who sent him out of compassion, out of love for the people he created and immediately rebelled against him. Friends, you have a decision to make this morning. Where is your hope? Now, please don't hear me say, you need to put your hope in Christ, which is just another way of saying, I'm a Christian, so my hope is in Christ. Just because you claim Christ doesn't mean Christ claims you. Is your hope truly in him? Do you live in the confident expectation, the confident assurance of the glory of God? Is there life change there? Is there a trusting and strengthening and growth there as you endure and persevere? Or as you endure and persevere, is it look at me and how impressive I am? One day you will stand before God at judgment time. And you will either try and gather up all of your good works, all of your nice stuff, all of your self-made impressiveness and try to offer that to God as the reason to enter into his presence forever. And if you do that, you will fail. Or you will stand before him, claiming Christ, claiming Christ as your justifier and the one who paid your debt. If your hope is in anything other than Christ, it will fail you. It will disappoint you. But if your hope is in Christ, you will never be put to shame. You will never be disappointed. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Thank you for people like Paul taking the time to write these things out and to Help us to remember and examine what it is that Jesus did at the cross for us. God, we pray that we, Lord, as we claim you, as we 
call out to you that you would hear us and know us as your children. That we truly would be justified by our faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this wouldn't be just a a one-off decision we made and it has no life change, has no real effect, but it, it changes us, it challenges us, it encourages us, it motivates us, it shapes our entire lives until we get to see you again. That our hope would truly be found in you, not in us, not in our bank accounts, not in our families, not in our friends and relationships, not in our self, but rather in Christ. Our future assurance, our confident expectation would be grounded and founded only in the reality that you are in control of all things and we know that something better is coming. That you are our dad protecting and providing. That you have, you are at work at all times, whether or not we can see it, whether or not we can understand it, you are at work at all times, in all ways, for our good and your glory. God, let this reality, this reality of our standing before you, for those who have put their faith in Jesus, this reality that we stand before you innocent and blameless, that we stand before you in the grace, the unconditional, the the grace, the unrelenting, unending grace that you have. Let that reality change us, God. Let that fuel us. Let that motivate us to know you more and deeper. To know the one who would do that. To know the one who would love us before we would or could love you. When we were unlovable, you loved us, Lord. Let us, after we have experienced and tasted and seen, let us go back to know you deeper and deeper still. Let us not hide from the, the opportunity to be the lights of the world, to point people to you. Let us not hide from the opportunities to have those conversations with people, to let them know what we know, that you are good. God, as we walk through a hard and dark year, as we continue to press on amidst partial openings of cities and we press on amidst just unrest and uncertainty and just life. Help us to rest in the hope that we have in you. The hope and the reality that you are in control of all things all the time. Let us be confidently expectant of the glory of God to come. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you are, for all that you have done, for all that you are doing, for all that you're going to do. Amen.